0: Good morning. We're the Walkers. Um, we've been members here for about uh, 13 years. Um, I'm Key. I'm uh, one of the deacons here and a life group shepherd. This is my wife Holly, uh, daughter Sydney, daughter Jaxie, and son Jude. Uh, he's going to light the candle here and we'll read the reading for the morning. After I get my glasses on. Uh, Jeremiah, chapter 30, verse 20. Their children shall be as they were of old, and their congregation shall be established before me, and I will punish all who oppress them. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for today. Father, we thank you for this Advent season where we've had an opportunity to um, look back on the birth of your son. Father, I just pray that you create in us each day. Um, a way to uh, look forward to your second coming, Father, that you'll just find uh, help us find opportunities and situations and circumstances where we you create a longing in our hearts for that, Father. I just pray blessings on our church body, and I'm just thankful for this season. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our scripture this morning is Micah 7 18 to 20. And as you turn there, just know that Micah provides this beautiful conclusion to his book. In short, you could just say he offers this almost psalm like description of God's work of salvation that he works out for his people. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Micah 7, 18 to 20. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob in steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together again. Father, again, we thank you for this word. And we pray in these brief moments that we have that you would accomplish all that you intend by this word. Lord, That we ask that you would be faithful to your promise not to allow your word to go out without doing all that you intend. I pray that you will strengthen us by this word, that you will comfort us, that you will convict us. Pray that you will kill us and raise us up by this word through your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Maybe may be seated. So again, we've been celebrating Advent through Scripture's testimony of the anticipation of Christ's coming. So we've seen just sort of some big themes we've seen. We've seen the promise of God's coming and judgment, right? That was chapter one, and did that. We saw that God will give us one that leads us back to Him, a leader. This one that leads us back to him will do what those leaders, Israel's leaders, failed to do for them. That was their job. He does it where they didn't. And we learned that that one that's going to lead us back to him is one that's not like we expected. Remember Ben, is sort of this unexpected king from an unexpected place. And then we learn that this God does these things for us because we're his sheep. He's our shepherd. And now we've made our way, this advent, this anticipation of his coming. And now we've celebrated his coming, or we're celebrating it now in the lighting of sort of the, the center white candle, the Christ candle. Celebrating Christmas, however you did, is a celebration, a celebration of his arrival. That's the point of Christmas, the arrival of Christ, the arrival of our Savior. Well, Micah ends his book with one of the best descriptions of the meaning of Christmas. He tells us of a God who reconciles. He tells us of a God who works for us to give to us himself. You think about that. I mean if you want to encapsulate it, and give it away and the be- one of the best summaries, this is a great summary of all that the coming of Christ means. That's why this is called the most wonderful time of the year. I I was singing that, well, like not really singing it, but just sort of, you know, just to Tracy. This is really my favorite time. I really, I really, in fact, early in December, one of the things that I was, Tracy and I were talking. And I was like, I really want to slow down because I hate how fast this goes. What's interesting, for me anyway, is that there's lots of little elements I think that make that the case for me. There are lots of these little memories when the kids are growing up about Christmas, and there's just this feeling that comes with it, and I don't know, it just, I I enjoy it, I like it. There are lots of things connected with that idea of this being the most wonderful time of the year. But what Micah says really gets at the point. This is why it's the most wonderful time of the year. Grasping what the coming of Christ means, really grasping this, evokes in us this exaltation. Right? This joyous exclamation of what God has done. It evokes in us this wonder. I mean, real wonder. Not the hallmark wonder. But real wonder. And awe at what God has done. It stirs in our hearts this, this, this fire to worship. Worship the one true God and our Deliverer, Christ. That is what Micah shows us in these three verses. Or we could put it this way, summarize it like this, right? 7, 18 to 20, Micah, what he's going to show us is that God takes pleasure in showing his goodness in Redemption. God takes pleasure in showing his goodness in redemption. And because of that, here's what happens. We should praise and honor him above all. Is that what Christmas does for you? Does Christmas make, did it, right? Make you stop and go, oh my goodness. Look at God. That's what this is supposed to do, what it does do in us when we listen, when we hear, when we see. So where do I get that from? That God takes pleasure in showing his goodness in redemption, and because of that, we should worship and, or excuse me, praise and honor him above all comes from verse 18, two little parts. The first part, verse 18, is that simple question that he asks, who is a God like you? This is almost an exclamatory kind of thing. That's why I say exult, exultation. It's this amazement. Who is a God like you? Who does this? Who is as amazing as you? And the construction of that verse that little phrase, it demands a negative answer. Nobody! I mean, essentially, he says that it, it's a rhetorical question, right? He's not asking the question. It's a rhetorical question that makes the point. He could be really saying, there is no other God like you. So he's praising but something about this God, right? Micah has talked about, he's shown, and he's going to show, something about this God that evokes that kind of praise. That evokes that kind of response. And that's also in verse 18. This he takes pleasure in showing his goodness and redemption. The last, look at the last part of verse 18. Last part, a little phrase, or that that clause. It begins with a because. Because he delights in steadfast love. He delights. He takes pleasure in it. He loves to show it. That is the God that... Micah is talking about we can put those two things together. Who is a God like you that delights in steadfast love? What kind of God other than you does this? None. None. So that's this idea. God takes pleasure in showing his goodness and steadfast love. And because of that, we praise and honor him, above all things. Well, what does that actually mean, delighting in steadfast love? Again, we could sort of say it this way. There's no other God who shows faithfulness like you. There's no other God who shows love like you. There's no other God who shows mercy like you, who shows grace like you, who shows kindness like you. That's steadfast love. Chesed. That's the you know, Hebrew word. I mean, it's just—it's like all stuffed with all kinds of meaning: faithfulness, love, mercy, grace, kindness. That's why, I sort of, just you got to cap, capture that under one big heading. That's goodness. I mean, if we had a big old bowl of goodness and we dumped it out, that's the stuff that we'd see. That's the stuff that we do see. That's what God reveals about himself to us, for us. And so, we should praise and honor him above all. Because this is what he's like. This is what he does. Now, this delighting in steadfast love, this showing goodness in redemption... He doesn't just leave us with generalities. He shows us the particulars, the specific things that we see God do that shows us that, that tells us that. What is it for him to show his faithfulness? What is it for him to show his love, his mercy, his grace, and his kindness? We're going to see the rest of this chapter, excuse me, the rest of these verses show us exactly what flows from that. So first of all, here's first, we should praise and honor Him above all because He covers and He conquers our sin. We should praise Him and honor Him above all because He covers and He conquers our sin. That's in verse 18. When he says God delights in steadfast love, here's how that's revealed. Pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression, not retaining anger. Those are the first three big ones. They all sort of go together. And then the next three big ones come after this. That pardoning, that is simply to say that he forgives sin. It is not that he can change what you've done. When we think about forgiving sin, it's not that all of that stuff didn't happen. All of those things, those those sinful ways that we think, those sinful ways that we act towards one another, towards God, it's not that all that stuff's not real. It just magically disappears. When he says he forgives pardons iniquity. The idea is the lifting up. The taking away of something that we desperately need to be taken away. Our guilt. He lifts from us our guilt. I just had a conversation with... um, uh, somebody, then not around here, was a patient of mine online, and we sort of got into this spiritual conversation. And some of you may know that you know AA talks about higher power, and this guy he was talking about the guilt that he felt, desperately wanting those that he'd offended to forgive. At the same time, recognizing that he was not in a position, and this is a story that um, lots of folks struggling with addiction, who are you know, at least you know, in treatment, are going to talk about this stuff, will talk about. Not in a position to actually ask for it, at the same time desperately wanting it, frustrated that they can't get it. And he was talking about his higher power. And I asked him. Well, I wonder if this is where your higher power sort of intersects. I've heard guys say. I can't get that. But I know that I'm right. With God. Now, they don't all mean the same thing when they say that. but it's a starting point. He wasn't sure about that. He wasn't sure how that would work. This guilt is a a problem that we struggle with desperately. I mean, for many of you, I would imagine, there is that struggle with the guilt and that struggle looks like you trying to find a way out from underneath it. Trying to feel bad enough. Maybe if I feel bad enough, I'll get rid of the guilt. It's sort of like this. It's sort of like, a, I'm, real, I'm real sensitive to smells. Right? It's a bit of an obsession, maybe. But that situation where you sort of kind of get downwind of yourself and you smell yourself and you just can't get away from that smell. You wash, it doesn't go away. That is what that guilt is like for many. For this to matter, you've got to know your sin. You've got to know your guilt. You've got to acknowledge it. That it's real. That it matters. And that you can't do anything about it. All that's got to be true for this to mean anything. That God takes and lifts that guilt. He moves it away. He passes over. That is to say that he overlooks without punishing. We're going to come back to that in a second. And that he relents in wrath. Now, we don't get that. Think of they got that, right? Because they were headed face first into God's wrath. Remember, Micah, the Assyrians are coming, and that's going to be bad news. They are, they are immersed in, Right in the middle of knowing what it is like to be separated from their God. That separation looks like wrath bearing down. Well, that's going on now. Right, Romans 1 says God is revealing his wrath from heaven. Not that he will. He is. Right? So you are surrounded by these expressions of God's wrath. And at the same time, surrounded by these expressions, these demonstrations of his grace and his mercy. God passes over, relents from wrath. This wasn't new. This actually goes back to um, uh, early in Israel's history. Really, from the very beginning, all of these words, these ideas, they're sort of compressed into this one incident. Again, where Israel, knee deep in their rebellion, facing the wrath of God, and God shows this, pardoning and passing over. He in Exodus thirty-four. This is that moment where Moses says, let me see you. He's sort of there petitioning as this sort of representative, this this, uh, type of Christ. There on the mountain, the throne room of God, pleading for these people that God would not destroy them. Remember what God does? He puts him behind a cleft and he passes by. Different use The same sort of idea. He's passing by. Showing his glory. What does he say when he announces what he's like? In Exodus 34. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love. There's our word. In faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But, again, saying what he's like who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Here in Micah, they are experiencing the latter part of that now. Right? Because the Syrians are coming. That's God's judgment. And at the same time in Micah, God is, He is promising the first part of that. God's not going to do that forever. It took a long time for him to get to the wrath. I mean, the full sort of unfolding of his wrath in exile. But there's a hair trigger on his grace and mercy, steadfast love. It's baffling that God is like that. You to hear people, you would think it's the opposite—that He can't wait to crush you, and it just takes a long time for Him to get to. A, he's like a He's like an angry parent that takes a long time to calm down. I mean, I mean, some of you may have had, you know uncles or aunts or moms or dads or grandparents like that where, you know, they got mad, you know, you couldn't come around them. They're like, get away from me. And you're just like, okay. And you sort of just wait. And then finally, after a while, they're like, all right, you can come back in here. Right. That is the way we think God is. I mean, that's the distortion that I think Satan likes to sell. But that's just funny. It's It's not what scripture describes when it talks about our God. We see all of these truths, these themes come together in Christ. Romans 3. Listen to this. Romans 3, 24. He's talked of, Paul has talked about the righteousness of God that's being revealed now that the prophets talked about. Right? But But this righteousness of God apart from the law, through the faithful work of Christ. He's talking about us who are justified by his his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 3.25 says this, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This thing that he talks about, God passing over sin. This, would, this includes all the other stuff. Right? Whether it's sacrifice, which brought real forgiveness, but not complete. Something was still there. Justice was not actually done. If God would have left it at that, then there would be a problem. His justice, that doesn't, how does his justice And his mercy makes sense. How do we have a just God that is merciful? If he just winks at sin, if he just overlooks it. If he doesn't fully take care of it. Well, that justice, that mercy comes together in Christ. God publicly display, displayed Jesus as a propitiation, that is, as a satisfaction for that wrath of God. Again, what we're seeing here in the story of Israel, you see Israel sort of constantly sort of in the crosshairs here, or coming to this sort of final place of these of judgment, and in Jesus. When Jesus came, they were in that same place of judgment, still under wrath. What does Jesus do? There's one guy said he sort of steps in the way of Israel and takes the bullet, absorbing that wrath, exhausting God's wrath, which delivers us from judgment. And the passage. Makes it clear that he does that, um, that he's put forward as a propitiation by the blood of Christ. That's how Micah can say what he's saying without seeing fully the way this was all going to work out. Micah anticipates this. He doesn't just cover our sin, he conquers our sin. Again, see that in verse 19. It says there that he will again show compassion or have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Do you notice that in the former where he's pardoning and he's passing over, right? Relenting in anger. That all seems, it's, I know it's not passive, but it all sounds very passive, doesn't it? At least when you compare it with this one. With this eye, this part, he's not just relenting of anger, he is showing compassion, mercy. He's not just pardoning sin, he's treading them. He's not just passing over, he's casting them. This latter part is active, that's the conquering. Again, this isn't new. In Exodus chapter 15, you hear these same ideas. Listen to this. In Exodus 14, 4 and 5, he's talking about what happened. They're going, yay, we'll sing this song. This is Moses' song. Moses constructed a song about this great victory that God had just worked for them as he's rescued them. From Egypt. And he says in verses 4 and 5. Pharaoh's chariots and his host. He cast into the sea. And his chosen officers. Were sunk. In the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths. Like a stone. 15. 11 through 13. We sort of get where Micah got his stuff from. Listen to this. Exodus 15, 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love, there's our word, the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them, by your strength to your abode, right? To the place where they can dwell with him. This is what Micah is talking about later, about a second, the anticipation of a second exodus. Redemption again. How do we know God's going to redeem us? Because he's already done it once. Well, lots of times. But here is the sort of the... the the. Uh, paradigmatic the story the narrative that tells us that gives us hope that our God will do this because this is what he's like again he doesn't just relent from wrath he shows compassion mercy that is he shows pity on us in our sin again some of you don't need that you don't know that you need to be pitied some of you don't like to be pitied, but you do need to be pitied because you're still here. You still struggle with sin. In defeating sin, that treading is subduing. And the idea is here, it wasn't just that he defeated the uh, Egyptians. The, uh, the Egyptians. It isn't just that God is going to rescue them from the Assyrians. That was then, Egyptians, Assyrians now. It's not just that he's going to rescue them and free them from that. He is actually rescuing them, subduing the sin that got them there to start with. It's redemption. Redemption. And he removes the sin, casting it in the sea. The, me- the metaphor is obvious, but it's worth stating again. He doesn't hold it over your head, first of all. How about that? <laughs> Wouldn't would that we all were a little bit more like God with each other? Right? Not holding it over your head. Any, anybody else do that? Yes, I forgive you. Done that with your kids? I forgive you but or at least that's the feeling. Do that with your spouse, friends. That's what's amazing. It doesn't hold it over your head. He gets rid of it. And you notice what it says there. Listen to the text. You cast all our sins. All of them you cast into the sea. All of them. Is it helpful to know that God has dealt with all of your sins? I mean... The ones that you're committing right now. The ones that you're going to commit like in... What is it? Yeah, like in 10 minutes. All of our sins. We see this conquering in his son. In Romans 6... And I want to read another one too. Romans chapter 6. Remember, chapter 6 is about that union with that baptism into Christ. Being united to Christ. Here's what Paul says. Verse 5. He says, For if we have been united with him in in a death like his we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer, here it is, be enslaved to sin. Being united to Christ means the dominion of sin, this is what Paul says later, is ended. When he says that old self is crucified, right? don't think there, because I think that our tendency is just to think in this sort of subjective, subjective kind of sense, well, that old me that used to do those bad things, that old me right, is, is no longer there. What's well, bigger than that? That old self is that. Literally, it's the old man. That's Adam. That's where you were. You've been taken out of that. That's been put to death. And then here's the important, well, the punchline. You're not enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. In verse 11 of chapter 6 it says this. So. You also must consider yourselves dead to sin. Here's the punchline. And alive to God. That's the important thing. Death to sin means you're no longer separated from Him. Death to sin means that you're no longer separated from life with Him. Death to sin means that you are with him, reconciled to him in Christ. You don't have that old master. So that is where we see, Micah, unpack what it is, what it means that God delights in steadfast love. There it is at first point is that he covers and conquers sin. And because he does that, we praise him. We honor him above all. And real quick, the last one. I have 10 points here, but I won't, I'm kidding, I don't. I just have one more. We should praise and honor him above all because he confirms his covenant. That's the last, verse 20. All right, he shows Faithfulness to Jacob, steadfast love to Abraham, as he swore to our fathers from days of old. This is where we see his kindness. Now we're going all the way back, further back than the Exodus, further back than Egypt. We're going all the way back to before there were 12 sons. He says, Abraham, he showed kindness to Abraham by calling him out. He showed kindness to Abraham by making a people for himself from Abraham. And in choosing a people through Abraham, he shows kindness to humanity. Because, remember, it is through Abraham's offspring that all the nations will be blessed. Through Abraham, blessing comes. Now, this last verse, along with a few other prophets, gets pulled back in at the coming of Christ. Real quick, in Luke chapter 1, and literally, it's almost, you see, a borrowing of this, this, this language and these concepts from here. Zechariah and Mary both. And we're landing the plane. In 46, listen to what Mary says. Verse 46 of chapter 1 in Luke, she says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Why? Verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And then chapter 1 of Luke, verse 54 and 5. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And Here it is. As he spoke to our fathers. To Abraham and to his offspring forever. This word that Micah speaks to the people of Israel. On the sort of right at the start of God's judgment in exile. With promises of a coming hope of deliverance and salvation. And forgiveness and pardon and all of those things. You see here Mary. Saying, this is it. Zechariah. Same chapter. His wasn't a song. It was a prophecy. Declaration. Listen to what he says in 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Why? For he has visited and redeemed his people. And then in 71 to 73 he says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. Zechariah grabs that promise that Micah offers at the end of his chapter and says, it's here. We see this work of Christ, this work that Christ would do preceded by this demonstration of the same character, the same God all throughout history, leading up to the birth of Christ. And what's fascinating is that you and I are still right there in that line in history. God works out this redemption in history, in reality. It's not ethereal. It's not up there, above, outside of reality. It breaks into history. Taste, touch, smell, a feel and God breaks into history in the most mysterious, ineffable way. In the flesh, in Christ. As a baby. Here. In this. The same world where this pandemic is. Christ broke into here to do for us the most important thing that we desperately needed. Redemption from our sins. Restoration to God. Uh, Ben said it not too long ago. I think uh, in a couple of sermons ago. But there is that uh, passage in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says, But God, but God, because of the great love with which he loved us, showed mercy. That's what he's granted to us. That's what he's given us. Now, our sins are dealt with, propitiated. They're conquered. And Romans 8, Paul said, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ right now. No condemnation. That doesn't mean you, you get a run up on it so that you can Not be condemned. In Christ. There is no condemnation. People of God. As we move through the season of Advent and Christmas. Because there is still more to go. And all the remainder of the festivals that we celebrate. As part of God's people. Do not miss the central. Amazing demonstration of God's goodness to you. Meditate on it. Savor these images of the beauty of his glory and what he's done in our salvation. Let these things provoke in you thanksgiving and adoration. Let them strengthen your faith and let them stir you to praise him and honor him above everyone else and everything else. He is your all. Our Lord's Supper passage is going to come from Mark. If you'll go ahead and get that ready, Mark Fourteen says, as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, he gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body, take and eat. Mark 14, 23 says, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Take and drink. <coughs> Let's pray together. Father, again, thank you for what you have shown us in your word, your goodness, your mercy. All the ways that you have displayed your steadfast love. We praise you that you delight. You take pleasure in showing these things to us. Help us to believe it. Strengthen us by this word. Strengthen us by this bread and this cup. In the name of Christ we pray all of these things. Amen.